Welcome to Reading to Kids podcast. I'm your host, Jenna. And I'm your host, Peyton. And we're here to read to you or with you. We know that sometimes moms and dads don't always have the time or the motivation to read to their kids each night, and we know how important it is. So, on those nights that you're not in the mood, we're going to do it for you. Can't wait to read with you. Good job, Peyton. High five. We're on chapter friggin' four. I know. It's very crazy. It is crazy. That means we only have four chapters left until we're done. Yep. Yep. Okay, put that down because that's going to be noisy. Chapter four, if you're reading this. It's too late. Book series. uh, Book number. Four. I mean, two. Of the secret series by. By Pseudonymous Bosch. Pseudonymous Bosch. Sorry, I can't say it that (laughs) way. I know, it's kind of a strange name. Do you know it's not his real name? Really? It's like a... I can't remember what it's called, but it's like a pretend name, so nobody really oh, knows. Oh, an actor name? No, it's not... I mean, yeah, kind of, but it's called something. Oh, a spy actor? Um, no, I'll find the name of it. Chapter 4, ending. No, not that kind of ending. Although, that would not be... That would be bad enough. I mean, the ending of life. Which, come to think of it, is why I hate the end of a book so much. Because it's kind of a death. There are two kinds of people in this world. The ones, people that love a graveyard and people who don't. When I was younger, I loved graveyards. They weren't spooky so much as mysterious. Each tombstone, another story to uncover, another life to learn about. Now that I'm older, I won't say how old. I hate graveyards. The only life, or rather death, I see in a tombstone is my own. Believe me, if I didn't have to end this book in a graveyard, I wouldn't. Okay, so I lied. It is that kind of ending, or the beginning of an ending. Come to think of it, who says I have to end the book in the graveyard? Just because that's where Dr. L and Miss Mavius headed with Cass and the homunculus? Just because that's where the big climactic confrontation and dramatic resolution of the story I've been telling this book took place? Who says I have to write about it? Contrary to what some may believe, this is still my book, isn't it? If I wanted to, I could think th- take things in a radically new direction, like this. Just when Cass thought that they were headed for the graveyard, the limousine got caught in the tractor beam of an alien spaceship that sucked the limousine up into its belly. As luck would have it, the aliens were on a mission to find a survivalist to lead their disaster-prone planet. Or this. Just when Cass thought that they were headed for the graveyard, Miss Mavius and Dr. L suddenly fell to an anaphylactic shock thanks to a pill the homunculus had dropped in their champagne or even this just when Cass thought that they were headed for the graveyard she blinked and woke up she cassandra a survivalist she laughed what a funny thing for a ballet dancer to dream about no none of these visions versions ring true i'm betraying you my reader by taking you off these in these wild directions Well, I tried. Your criticism is harsh, but fair. I'll tell you what. You know how much I like deals? I'll write the graveyard scene and if, if, and only if you hold my hand through it, you could be strong. You could be the strong and courageous one and I'll provide the commentary. If you're the kind of person who happily runs through graveyards laughing at death, so much the better. Now, how to start our ending? Normally, when a writer doesn't know how to, how to start, he might begin with the description of a place. But I did that already. You already know about the graveyard. And Whisper Lake is the camp, 
camping chapter in the camping chapters. I have an idea. Why don't we show how the place has changed since we last saw it? How much time has passed? That sort of thing. To make the job easier and maybe a little less scary, let's pretend that we're making a movie and imagine that Whisper Lake and the surrounding mountains are being filmed from high above in a helicopter. That's called an aerial shot. What we see from up here in the sky is that the entire mountain range has been blanketed in snow and Whisper Lake has been frozen over. In fact, it is snowing now very softly, giving our movie the look of slow motion. Little specks of color move against the white background. People we, we see, we see they are as the camera pushes in. They make the tracks through the snow, all converging on the same point above the lake. We watch as one by one, these silent hikers salute to each other. Strange for a second, it looks as though they have no hands. Oh, I know why. It's because they're all wearing white gloves that doesn't show up against the white snow. From her earthbound vantage point, tied a tree to some 20 yards above the grave of Lord Pharaoh. Cass made the same observation. Gloves. She knew what they meant. She'd seen these same sinister people on a similar occasion at the midnight sun. They were all acolytes of the midnight sun, and if they were gathering like this, it could only be because something terrible was about to occur. What was once Lord Pharaoh's grave was now a large graffing hole surrounded by frozen clods of mud. A team of silver-clad men, bouncers from the concert, stood in the hole removing a dirt and rubble so expertly and methodically that I have to believe they dug it up. They had dug up many graves before. Around them, the masters of the midnight sun, several still in sockroach costumes, stood in a wide circle chanting something deep and resonant like a yoga master's ohm, yet somehow darker and more foreboding. Impervious to the cold, Miss Mavia stood on the edge of the grave, her gauzy gown, gold gown blowing in the wind. Snowflakes swirled around her. Like a high priestess, she spoke to her congregation. A great man was buried here. No, a great being, even a god, for he had the power to create life itself. Who knows what kind of miracles Lord Pharaoh would have achieved had not his own creation turned against him. This miserable, ungrateful creature. She gave a dismissive kick to the homunculus who was lying in the snow beneath her. His hand and feet were bound together with rope. But now we will continue Lord Pharaoh's work, and we will be gods ourselves. With the excited cries of the grave diggers, hoisted a large and cumbersome coffin out of the grave and laid it in the snow. An oozing, festering crust covered the entire casket, save for a gleaming golden lock. Oh, that's true. The coffin seemed almost to be alive. Mm. Behold, in this coffin lies the secret that we have so long sought. The secret. The secret. The secret, chanted the crowd. Doctor, Mrs. Mavius looked unexpectedly at Dr. L. He nodded and stepped forward skeleton key in hand the coffin's gold lock beckoned you don't want to open that warned the gruff voice from the ground you mean you don't want us to open that scoffed mrs mavius me it's nothing to me the homunculus responded it isn't my time and this isn't my place i'm not i'm not one of you you are you are not lord pharaoh's papers in there with him asked dr l among other things yes 
Is the secret written in there? I don't know anything about that, said the homunculus, as if the secret were the least of his concerns. But I'm telling you, if you let out what's in that coffin, then everything and everyone you see around you will die, and it won't smell very good either. I speak only out of concern for the girl you understand. He gestured awkwardly towards Cass without looking at her, and because I think the trees deserve to live. Perhaps we should listen to him, Dr. L., turning to Mrs. Mavius. His words have a ring of truth. Are you mad? yelled Miss Mavius, sounding quite mad herself. By now the snow had started to pile up on Cass's head and her shoulders and feet, and it looked as though she was one of those statues in a graveyard. Cass had long ago memorized the symptoms of frostbite, discoloration of the skin, tingling or burning, feeling numbness, but she'd never experienced them. Unfortunately, her extensive research on the subject did her no good now. It did not help to know that if frostbite was left untreated, her skin would gradually darken until it became black and begun to loosen from her flesh, that her nerves would be damaged beyond repair, and that she would probably fall prey to gangrene. She liked to think that she would be brave enough to face amputation if it were ever required, but there was little chance that even such a drastic treatment would would be available to her. Dr. L was much more likely to chop off her head rather than her leg. How? Why? Had she let herself become to become their prisoner? It was like the old bo- boat all over again. The one big difference... On the boat, Max Ernest had been imprisoned with her. Now in the mountains, she was alone, cold and alone. She looked out on the empty, snowy world around her. The midnight sun had scared even the birds away. Where was Max Ernest now? I should have never given him the sound prison, she thought. It was, the, it was my only tool, my only power. Why did I trust him with it? What made me think that he would be able to come here to save me? It wasn't a survival wasn't a survivalist supposed to save herself, and here she was waiting helpless, tied to some tree like snow white, and now she thought, "I'm going to die." Tears trickled down Cass's cheeks only to collect in an ugly, icy crust combination with the frozen snot between her nose. Ooh. as Miss Mavius and Dr. L fought over whether or not to open up the coffin coffin, the homunculus was dragged through the snow and dropped next to Cass. He looked up at her in a sad, small, in a sad, small smile on his face. The jester would have been proud of you, he said. Why? Look at me. I'm crying. Oh, I don't think he would have cared about that. He saw me cry once and told me that it made me human. Only a miserable, pathetic human wretch would shed tears like that, he said. Cass laughed through her tears. Sorry about the, the crown roast, she said after a moment. I shouldn't have lied. The homunculus snorted. The jester wasn't exactly famous for his truthfulness either. Well, thank you for not holding it against me, Cass sniffled, unable to wipe her nose. You know, I used to dream about you. I even dreamt of this, sort of. She nodded in the direction of the open grave. Max Ernest says that a dream is a fulfillment of a wish. I couldn't figure out why my dreams were wishing, what my dreams were wishing for if they seem so scary. But I think I know now. I thought I told you I don't grant wishes, the homunculus joked, wiggling closer. But you did. That's the point. Cass was so cold that it was impossible to speak, but she had to get it out. I think my wish had to do with wanting to know who my father is, even though I never totally admitted it, because I didn't want to have to miss him or whatever. Or maybe maybe just because I didn't want to hurt my mom's feelings. 
it's kind of hard to explain, but what you told me about the jester and his pointy ears and everything is the only clue I've ever had. I mean, I know he couldn't have been my father. Then I'd be as old as you. But he could be my father's 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 father or something like that, right? The homunculus nodded. Something like that. Anyways, I think that's why I dreamt about you. Although, it still doesn't make any sense, considering I've never met you before. Very little in this world makes sense, said the homunculus, with uncharacteristic solemnity. They fell silent as the wind picked up. Then suddenly, Cass, hey, what's that? What's what? Cass cocked her head, listening. It sounds like horses. I can't hear anything, said the homunculus. Then again, I don't have your ears. What do you mean, my ears? It's your gift, isn't it? The jester could hear all kinds of things. Too much, if you ask me, even with the, without the sound of prism. As Cass contemplated this, they heard Dr. L's voice ring out so loud that it echoed across Whisper Lake. Hello, my fellow masters of the midnight sun. This is your leader, Luciano, Dr. L speaking. There has been a change of plans. This is not Lord Pharaoh's grave. It contains no secret. Still standing by the coffin, Miss Mavius looked at Dr. L in outrage. What are you doing? He whirled around, distressed. But that wasn't me. Pay no attention. <laughs> he shouted at the Midnight Suns members. Everyone must leave now, boomed the voice over... Over... Wait, boomed the voice of this other louder Dr. L. The Midnight Sun members mumbled and grumbled in confusion. Those who couldn't hear the real Dr. L beckoning them to stay, to dissemble. Who's speaking? Who stole my voice? Dr. L shouted. Pietro, is that you? But his voice was drowned by the sound of galloping horses. As everyone turned in the direction of the horses, the sockroaches nearest the grave ripped off his head. I think like his costume. Owen? (laughs) Owen. He waved at Cass as he shouted at the rest of the shed the rest of his lime green costume i'll come and get you in a second he shouted in the seldom used voice she'd come to recognize as his own then he rustled a yellow fellow sockroach to the ground pietro where are you cried dr l looking for his brother as if dr l had summoned him from beyond pietro arrived out of the grave trees on horseback at the other side of the graveyard and his hand was what looked like from a small distance a large snowball Everyone, go home, he shouted, onto the snowball, as if it were a megaphone. Alongside Pietro, a lively, diverse, which is the polite word of saying, a polite word, a polite way of saying rambunctious and ragtag, sort of cavalry rode in the graveyard. With cheers and cries of ballyhoo, they attacked, which is a polite way of saying created chaos among their white-gloved adversaries. On one horse, which in this case is a politely polite way of saying a donkey, sat two little people seen earlier on the bus, still in their formal attire. As soon as they entered the graveyard, they jumped off and started running under the legs of the silver-clad bouncers, tripping them up and occasionally biting their ankles. Good. <laughs> Remember, they're the midgets. The bearded lady also jumped off of her horse, which in this case is a polite way of saying elephant, and started swinging her fists at unsuspecting Midnight Sun members. The strong man, meanwhile, marched on foot supporting, which is like the way of saying 
wielding like human barbells, two Chinese plate, two Chinese plate spinners and knocking over enemies on all sides, standing on top of a horse, which in this is ways of is, which in this case is a polite way of saying camel, the illustrated man breathed fire from his mouth, lighting torches that he juggled then threw at fleeting sockroaches. In a cart behind him, the red-coated lion tamer waved his bullwhip and bowed this way, and if, and that as if before cheering a crowd. Polite way of saying he was off his rocker. Alone, alone among this bravish band, there was one who truly followed the way of a warrior. That was, of course, the one and only warrior we. We, Lily, wore a full body armor over her black gi. What's a gi? It's like one of the, um, I think it's like a karate outfit. They tie like a, um, oh. yeah. And had her horse head violin strapped to her back as if it were a sword, which in fact it was. Like laser beams, her eyes locked on the old nemesis, Mrs. Mavius, who was standing slightly removed from the melee, a look of intense rage on her face. Screaming a vengeful word I cannot repeat because it was obscene, but because it was utterly unrecognizable. Lily kicked her heels into the side of the horse and charged. Just before she could make contact, however, Miss Mavia signaled six of her gloved grave diggers with a flicker of her glove and wrist, and they blocked Lily's way, putting, pulling her off her horse. By the time Lily kicked and chopped and swung her way through the, through the line of silver-clad thugs, Mrs. Mavius had disappeared. But, undeterred, Lily plunged into the battle with the rest of the midnight sun, running behind the circus folk, looking winded but also exhilarated. Were two much younger com- comparatively uncolorful people. Max Ernest and Yo-Yoji. Pietro stalled his horse next to them. Thanks for this. He tossed Max Ernest a snowball, which of course was actually the sound prism, and which Max Ernest caught with two hands. Now all we need is that, or now all we need is that, said Max Ernest. He pointed to the senile lion tamer, still standing on his horse, bowing to an imaginary crowd. Hey, mister, can we borrow your whip? He shouted. Yo-Yoji looked at Max Ernest in surprise. What the heck did he want a whip for? Pietro urged his horse forward and then jumped off when when he neared the grave. In the commotion, Lord Pharaoh's coffin hadn't had been left unguarded. Pietro! It was it was his brother. Suddenly they were face to face and almost nose to nose. They were so close, so quickly and unexpectedly that they stepped backwards as if it as if frightened by a ghost. Although Pietro's face had aged so much more than Dr. L, the movements remained identical. And watching the two of them together was like watching a person standing in front of a mirror or maybe like watching two people playing mirror in a drama class. Nice trick of the voice, said Dr. L, recovering. I don't remember that one. I guess I've learned a thing or two since the Bogarmo brothers' last performance. Dr. L smiled wanly. You look old, brother. And so I am. So we are, Luciano. Come come home with me. It's not too late. You are not this thing. He gestured to Dr. L's handsome but lifeless face. His slick clothes, his telltale gloves. I don't believe it. I won't believe it. 
Dr. L blinked for a moment. He seemed almost to waver, to regret what he had done, to agree to repent. You always thought that you knew better than me, didn't you? He asked with a sneer. I do know better, said Pietro. They stared at each other, their old love for each other, trying other, vying with their new found hatred. Kill him, Miss Mavia screamed, striding towards them. Dr. L raised his gloved hand. He held the skeleton key up like a weapon. Goodbye, fratello mio, Petro said sadly. Do you remember this one? He reached down and grabbed a full fist of snow. We used to smoke. We used to use smoke. But before his brother had time to react, Pietro threw a powdery snow in his brother's eyes, creating a sparkly cloud. He remounted his horse and escaped to the fracas. A moment later, Max Ernest and Yo Yoji climbed onto the boulder overlooking the lake, the boulder in which they'd stood when Cass first called the homunculus a few weeks ago. Below in the graveyard, chaos reigned. Are you sure this is going to work? asked Yoyoji. He held on to the lion tamer's whip in his hand and he flicked it, flicked it nervously. Uh, Define sure, said Max, holding the sound prism so tight his knuckles were white. Am I absolutely positive? No. Am I reasonably thir- certain? Uh, no. Do I think that there's a good chance of success? Depends on what you mean by good. Do I think it'll work? Mm, I hope it will. Does part of me think this plan is insane? Uh, yeah. Is it kind of the thing I would normally do? Okay, I get the point. Anyways, the fact is that the whip creates a sonic boom, and I've read about it because when you crack it, it moves fast and the speed of faster than the speed of sound. Yo Yoji eyed the whip in his hand, as if wondering how it could possibly move that fast. Plus, said Max Ernest, standing a little taller, it's the only way that we could save Cass. Well, the only way I can think of. Do you have a better idea? Yo Yoji gave the whip an experimental crack. Max Ernest jumped back, startled. Okay, you're the boss, he said Yo Yoji, and he made a first and he made a fist and looked meanly at Max Ernest. Paper scissor rocks asked his confused friend. Yo Yoji laughed. No, like this. And he showed Ernest how to fist bumps. It was strange for Cass to be on the sidelines of a battle waging in front of her in front of the graveyard. Owen, it seemed, was still too busy fighting the sockroaches to untie her. In her fantasies, at least, she was always the hero in the situations, not the damsel in distress. She still was glad there were heroes. Still, she was glad there were heroes around, and even if they weren't her. She'd barely caught a glimpse of her two friends, but that had been enough. True, the Midnight Sun had numbers on their side, not to mention just about every other advantage you could think of, but just knowing that Max Ernest and Yo Yoji were there that they'd called Pietro and she'd, just as she'd planned, made her feel hopeful. She wasn't alone, she realized. She had a friend. In fact, she had two. And more if you counted Pietro, Owen, and Lily. She looked down at her feet in the homunculus. How many friends could, ha- could a person have? Perhaps there was no limit. She made a mental note to discuss this subject one day with Max Ernest. She thought again of the last time that she'd been tied up on the midnight sun boat. She hadn't yet tried to reenact Max Ernest's worm wiggle because she had been under constant guard, but now she realized nobody was looking at her. Even the homunculus was still tied up in the snow beside her. It was absurd, was absurd in the scene in front of him as though it were almost a movie. She tested the rope for slack. Sure enough, they used too much rope again, and she kicked her shoes off the first step. And wincing, 
stood in her socks in the snow. Now she'd get frostbite for sure. Imagining a future life without toes, she shimmied herself out of the rope sooner than she expected. Wait, she was how does that help? Because if you use too much rope, there's always a little bit extra. So you can like wiggle it, wiggle it, wiggle it, and then you just go loose. You have to like slowly. Um, uh, back on. Okay. Sooner than she expected, she was tying her shoes back on and untying the surprised homunculus. Nice job, Jester Jr. Anytime. As she spoke, her voice was lost in the boom. It sounded like a crack of thunder followed by the loudest rumbling Cass had ever heard. Indeed, the loudest rumbling of the homunculus had ever heard. And he'd been hearing rumbling for 500 years, though mostly his own stomach. Look, it's working, said Yo-Yoji. He and Max Ernest watched as the rock started to shake loose from its peaks above. Yeah, but they're not going to—they're not going in the right direction. Maybe we should try aiming for that. That'll come right down on them," said Yo Yoji, pointing to a tall mountain peak that seemed to rise directly out of the graveyard. The snow on the peak was piled so high it created a lip. You don't mean the cornice. I don't know how to aim for that exactly, said Max Ernest, looking from the sound prism to the mountain peak. It, I was just figuring if I could create a big enough sonic boom, the whole thing would avalanche. Well, let's try it again. But don't close your eyes this time. Okay, but it's hard not to. It's a reflex. Bravely, keeping his eyes open, Max Ernest held the sound prism as far out as he could in front of him. With an unusual intensity to, to focus, Yo-Yoji flicked the whip backwards and then crack. Less than an inch away from the sound prism. Boom! It was even louder this time. The mountains shook. A big crack zigzagged through the frozen face of Whisper Lake. Max, Ernest, and Yo-Yoji stared in amazement. At first, not noticing that the boulder they were standing on had dislodged from the mountainside and started to roll. Cass heard the boulder before she saw it, and that she only had a hazy hunch that the sonic boom had been created by Max, Ernest, and Yo-Yoji, and the only various haze of hunches that she proposed of the booms was to bury Lord Pharaoh's coffin for her. Nonetheless, she snapped into action as though the plan had been her own. Come on, she said to the homunculus, pointing to the coffin as the boulder hurtled towards Lord Pharaoh's grave, gaining speed every second. Thankfully, Max, Ernest, and Yo-Yoji had managed to jump off. While the midnight sun and the Turkish society Members alike scattered this way and that, running from the boulder's path. Cass and the homunculus sprinted to the coffin. Together they pushed the coffin, it was still on wheels, back into the grave and heaved it over the edge, edge into the hole. Cass, warned the homunculus. The boulder had bounced off of another rock and sailed through the air and was now rolling directly at them like a giant bowling ball. With superhuman effort, the little homunculus rammed Cass into Cass, pushing her out of the way just in time. But as he did... He lost his footing and, Mr. Cabbage Face, he fell backwards into the hole and the boulder crashed on top of him, sealing the homunculus in Lord Pharaoh's deadly coffin in the grave forever. Okay, now I'm sad. They have to get him out. They they can get him out. He's a homunculus. He lives underground. He knows how to dig out. I'm just going to say that. Remember, he said he spent a lot of time underground. Okay, we got to get going, guys. Bye.